From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A spinal cord injury research collaboration between Mayo Clinic and UCLA has yielded some very promising results. Spinal cord stimulation and physical therapy have helped a man who has been paralyzed since 2013 regain his ability to stand and walk with assistance. On today's program, we'll hear about this exciting research from both the neurosurgeon and the rehabilitation specialists involved in the study. Also on the program, how deep brain stimulation surgery works. That's this week's program. Up next. Tracy, you may have heard the story of the professional musician who played the violin while he was undergoing brain surgery. Well, it's absolutely a true story. Dr. Kendall Lee and his surgical team implanted electrodes into Roger Frisch's brain to stop a tremor that could have ended his professional orchestra career of more than 40 years. It's amazing. Deep brain stimulation surgery involves implanting electrodes within certain areas of the brain. Roger Frisch's story was recently recounted in the Ken Burns documentary, The Mayo Clinic Faith, Hope, Science. Here to talk about the progress being made in treating patients with spinal cord injury is neurosurgeon and director of Mayo Clinic's Neural Engineering Laboratory, Dr. Kendall Lee. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Lee. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Dr. Lee, good to see you again. So tell us the violin story. We're all dying to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, So deep brain stimulation is a technology that now allows us to treat patients for a variety of disorders, including Parkinson's disease, tremor, dystonia. Um, but dystonia? In, yes, dystonia is a disorder where patients have very uh, severe rigidity in their muscles and they cannot control it. And some of these patients may not be able to walk because of the dystonia or they might have their neck dystonia where they can't control the movement of the neck. Okay. And so as it turns out, this Deep brain stimulation is now approved by the FDA for these disorders. Now, in the case of Roger Frisch, what he has is a little bit different from this movement disorder. You know, he is a one of the concert masters with the Minnesota Orchestra who is a master at playing the violin. Now, I suspect because he practiced so much, probably hours and hours every day, that he developed what is called more use-dependent tremor. So somehow his brain circuits, and likely because of how much he plays the violin, developed an abnormal circuitry in his brain. Oscillation is what we call it, which is basically manifested as tremor in his in his hand. Kind of an overuse syndrome. Kind of, yes, exactly. Okay. You know, you probably heard of... Um, like in golfers, certain golfers, because they're so good, yeah. they have what's called yips, Yeah. Mm-hmm. where right when they're ready to putt a very easy hole, their muscles tense up and uh, they have a movement problem and they miss. It's similar to that. Yes. It's, huh. kind, it's kind of violin like violin yips. Kind of, yes, yes, except he has tremor with this. And okay. so when he developed this, he didn't know that there was anything that he could do. He went to a variety of physicians but there was really nothing that was offered. Now, when he came to see me, he had his violin with him. He walked in. I saw him. And unlike my other patients, Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, dystonia, where I can pretty much tell what they have right away, mm-hmm. I thought he looked perfectly normal. And then he said, well, wait. And so he then proceeded to take out his violin, which 
By the way, it's a very, very expensive violin that he brought to my office. And he started to play this music. And I'm not a musician. I don't fully understand. But when he played certain notes, you could hear vibrato, you know, a lot of shaking. I didn't know he didn't mean to do that. But he said, no, he's trying to hold the note perfectly still, but he can't do it because he's, he's having this, this tremor only when he plays certain kind of notes. And so um, we presented him to our neuromodulation committee because this is an unusual kind of situation. And he was approved by our neuromodulation committee to undergo this surgery, which at that point, we were not 100% sure that we could help him. And so in the operating room, typically for the deep brain stimulation surgery, I do the surgery with the patient awake, particularly in situations like this, because I don't know beforehand whether or not we're going to be able to treat this, and we need to know whether or not the tremor goes away with the stimulation. So they need to be awake during surgery. Yes, and and in this case it was unique because not only did he have to be awake, but we had to have the violin. He play, had to play violin. <laughs> yes, we had to have the violin because that's the only time that the tremor comes out. So how does deep brain stimulation work? But, but uh, I got to ask you though. You say the patient is awake, but you got to put a hole in the skull yes. to get this needle in. Yes, now, they're not awake for that. When you drill the uh, hole, no, in no, the they skull. they are awake for that. You, yeah. you do it under local. Yes. So, um, you know, just like a dentist would use Novocaine to numb yeah. up the teeth, mm-hmm. it's the same type of anesthetic that I use that numbs up the skin, and drill a tiny little hole in the skull. But by the way, this surgery is incredibly precise. It's done using a what's called a stereotactic head frame, and we get an MRI. So even though we don't see inside, um, you know, like through an incision, mm-hmm. we actually can see the brain through the MRI, and we have the ability to target very, very precisely uh, within any area of the brain. So and how did you know where you wanted to put this needle? Yes. So, so we, you, there's a little place there that says can't play violin, and you stick the needle in there? <laughs> yes. Actually, this is... Um, this is one area of research that we've been doing research on in the Mayo Neuroengineering Laboratories, exactly what you just asked. So how does deep brain stimulation work? And we have developed several uh, technologies to figure out how it works. And in particular, we're very excited about a technology called the WINK system that we have now tested that shows that it appears that deep brain stimulation can release different kinds of neurochemicals in the brain that stops abnormal oscillations, or these are uh, oscillations that ultimately cause the tremor. And DBS appears to release those chemicals um, that causes that kind of tremor. And furthermore, we now know we have a marvelous map of the brain circuitry. We pretty much know all of the various circuits that's causing this type of tremor. And in this case, it's coming from an area of the brain called the thalamus, which is center of the brain, deep. That's why it's called the deep brain stimulation. And more specifically, called a VIM, ventralis intermedius, part of the thalamus. Now, this case is unique because that's the usual area for a central tremor. When we did the surgery on that area, he got you know pretty good tremor control, but it wasn't perfect. And the interesting aspect that also Ken Burns picked up on is that we had to then add a second lead that is not so usual. So we needed to find that. And he okays it in the movie. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, we saw that. That was great. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, let me be clear. This is still brain surgery, and therefore it has inherent risk. And I, of course, had to discuss all of this with Mr. Frisch and all of my patients that it has risks such as causing a bleed, hemorrhage, 
stroke, and so forth. So we have to take those risks. But in this case, the potential benefit far outweighed, in our opinion, the risks that he took. For his quality of life, it was a deal breaker. Yes, absolutely. You know, the amount of uh, tremor that Mr. Frisch has actually would be considered, you know, not so much in, in the sense that you and I, right. if we had it, it would not affect our life. But for him, because he's a concert master, this was actually devastating. Yeah, now the other interesting thing is he has a remote now where he can turn these electrodes on or off if he's not using them, if he's not playing the violin, right? That is correct. So he can, tr- and, and as soon as he turns it off, all of his tremor comes back. Which now, he, yeah, he demonstrates in the movie. Yeah, now the <laughs> other interesting thing is, is when we added the second lead in another area, just in front of the VIM, what we discovered is his tremor control actually is almost supraphysiologic, meaning that, you know, everybody, you and I, under certain conditions, would have a little bit of tremor, physiologic tremor. Well, interestingly, he can now hold a note almost superhuman, meaning that he can play that violin even better than before. Well, that's not fair. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) All right, we've been talking about deep brain stimulation with Dr. Kendall Lee. Now I want to ask you, we need an update on the stimulation of the spinal cord in patients who have been been paralyzed and potentially uh, can get some return of function. Yes, you know, this is another technology that we've been working on here at the Mayo Clinic for about four years now. Uh, We've been growing this program slowly, and I'm very happy to report that this is another technology that is emerging to be very powerful. In addition, it is also allowing us some interesting understanding of how volitional control of movement happens. What that means is how does the brain control our limbs voluntarily? So this is the finding that was just reported in Nature Medicine. Yes, that, that, that's correct. So maybe I can tell you a little bit of background on this. So about four years ago, Dr. Reggie Egerton and Dr. Susie Hakima had um, published a paper, very interesting paper, where they implanted patients, at that time about four patients, where epidural stimulation below the level of the spinal cord injury could cause voluntary movement back in the lower extremities. So, okay, epidural means uh, above the dura. So, okay. so this and the is, dura is the outer coating around the spinal cord. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So, this is technology that is essentially same as what we use for our pain patients. So Under the skin, but outside of the spinal cord. Outside of the spinal cord, but just outside of the covering of the spinal okay. cord. Okay. So these are actually surgical implants, and what's been demonstrated with these devices in pain patients is that they can help with pain. So this is already approved by the FDA for pain. Now, what Dr. Hakima and Reggie Egerton's group did was to now apply this technology in spinal cord injured patients who've been paralyzed, for example, with a thoracic or um, chest, uh, chest level, mm-hmm. complete motor and sensory, meaning they can't move their legs or sense there's no sensation. So when that paper came out that you can get movements, we were very excited about it because this really changes our whole view of what we can do for our spinal cord injured patients. Mm-hmm. So we teamed up with Dr. Reggie Egerton's group and decided, can we replicate those studies? And so initially, the goal of this study, which is Mayo IRB approved, investigational uh, review board approved, as well as the U.S. FDA, 
to do this study. And so we've implanted now two patients under this study. And this paper that is um, being reported in Nature Medicine demonstrates that indeed what was found was true, but we actually went beyond that replication. So the replication portion of it, we actually already published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings last year. Mm -hmm. And this was really exciting because our results confirmed the findings of Dr. Susie Hakima and Reggie Egerton. So that was exciting. But what we discovered is that we could actually go beyond that finding. And in this paper, what we demonstrate is that the patient now is able to stand and take independent steps. Now, he still re- requires a walker because he has no sensation still, but he is strong enough now to to control his legs and make movements, uh, stepping movements. Now, that is an incredible story. Now, when the word gets out, isn't every paraplegic in the country going to want this? Well, you know, this is still very early stage research. Like I said, this is only one patient that we have reported in Nature Medicine. And so what I would say is this one study really challenges what we used to think what is possible for treatment of patients with spinal cord injury. But, you know, as a neurosurgeon, I often see these patients in the emergency room after the trauma, and you can imagine how devastating such an injury is. But I think what our study shows is that there is this tremendous hope in being able to regain some of that function. So you're regaining function, but you're not able to cure or fix the fact that they are paraplegic. Yes. Now, what is really interesting about this study is that the patient is actually able to control his legs again. Wow. And that's why this is such a powerful study. And I believe why the reviewers and Nature Medicine, which is one of the top journals in medicine, um, accepted this publication. So let me ask you, if, if someone comes into the emergency room and they have cut a nerve in their arm or their leg, we can sew it back together and they get at least some return of function. Why is it that the spinal cord seems to have no ability whatever to repair itself? You know, that's an excellent question. And we believe the reason is because while the nerve, those are peripheral nerves, and we know that those peripheral nerves can regrow. But the spinal cord is our central nervous system. And unfortunately, with central nervous system, when that system is cut, those nerves do not regrow. What we believe in this case, though, is that the question then is, how does the information from the brain that wants to move the leg regain that function? Mm-hmm. We do not believe that the nurse has regrown. I, we do not think that's how this works. But rather that during the trauma, there's probably enough connections that are not functioning enough, but that epidural stimulation allows these cells that's dormant to be able to once again regain its ability to get the command from the brain. Incredible. Do you uh, hope and suspect that someday people who are paraplegic or even quadriplegic, let's stick with paraplegia right now, the lower extremities paralyzed, will someday be able to walk? That's precisely what this patient did that we have reported in um, in Nature Medicine. Where is research headed? You know, I, I think now this is opening up a whole new direction in research for spinal cord injury. You know, before 
there's been tremendous amount of research effort and funding that went into trying to regrow those axons. Now what I think will happen is that the research will be in these type of new devices. How do we now take this finding, which used a device that wasn't even intended for this purpose, now all of the things that we have discovered in this study, how then can we take that, take a step back and re-engineer the device specifically for this purpose of limb reanimation in spinal cord injury patients? Does there have to be a different type of approval by the FDA for this? Absolutely. Okay. And the and that's why I think we are in the very early infant stages of this technology. Incredible story. All right, Dr. Kendall Lee, he is a neurosurgeon and director of Mayo Clinic's Neural Engineering Laboratory. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you exciting, so much. Exciting stuff. Thanks Thank you. a lot. Still to come, we'll learn more about the spinal cord injury research from the rehabilitation point of view. But first, here's Vivian Williams with this week's news. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one-third of U.S. adults don't get enough sleep. Busy lives may be the reason some people don't log the hours they need, but for others, sleep disorders are the culprit. Research shows proper sleep is essential for good health. Dr. Varen Somers, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, studies sleep because sleep disorders such as obstructive sleep apnea are associated with issues that affect the heart. Dr. Somers says symptoms include stopping breathing in the night, snoring, daytime sleepiness, irritability, obesity, erectile dysfunction, depression, and certain heart-related conditions such as high blood pressure or atrial fibrillation. A sleep study can help diagnose sleep disorders and let healthcare providers know what, if any, treatments you might need. Because, as Dr. Summer says, when you don't sleep well, bad things can happen. And in other news, millions of Americans have at least one pet at home. Studies have shown there are many health benefits to having a companion animal. Pets can increase fitness, lower stress, and bring happiness to their owners. Health benefits may include decreased blood pressure, decreased feelings of loneliness, increased opportunities for exercise and outdoor activities, increased opportunities for socialization. But did you know that handling your pet's food could make you sick? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says dry and canned pet food can be contaminated with germs that can make you and your family sick. So here's some tips to stay safe while feeding your pet. Always wash your hands with soap and water after handling pet food or treats. Store pet food and treats away from where human food is stored and prepared. Keep pet food and treats away from small children. Don't use your pet's feeding bowls to scoop food. Use a dedicated cup or scoop. The CDC does not recommend feeding raw diets to pets. Salmonella and listeria bacteria have been found in raw diet pet food, including packaged ones found in pet stores. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, as we just discussed with neurosurgeon Dr. Kendall Lee, Mayo Clinic researchers have made a truly exciting breakthrough in the treatment of spinal cord injuries. Through electrical stimulation on an injured spinal cord and intense physical therapy, the first patient implanted with this device at Mayo Clinic is now strong enough to be able to stand and make movements that are resembling steps. 
the patient is actually able to exert some control over his legs again, legs that were completely paralyzed. The latest update on this research was recently published in Nature Medicine. We've heard about this exciting advancement from the neurosurgeon's perspective, but an equally important part is the role played by physical medicine and rehabilitation. And here to tell us about it is Dr. Kristen Zhao and Megan Gill. Dr. Zhao is the director of Mayo Clinic's Assistive and Restorative Technology Laboratory, and Megan is a physical therapist in Dr. Zhao's lab. Welcome both of you to the program. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to have you both. This must be exciting for both of you to, to work on this project. Who's most excited? <laughs> <laughs> I well, think Megan. <laughs> yeah, you know, being a clinician and having the experience of working with this population for 14, 15 years now, it's really exciting to be able to finally have something that we can tell our patients and our patients' families that we're making progress towards um, recovery for those who have such a devastating injury, such as a complete spinal cord injury. So it's it's really life-changing for me as a professional, but also the experience to be able to tell our patients that there's hope on the horizon is really, really amazing. Did you know for a while that this was coming, something like this would ultimately become available? Yeah, I had been kind of following the literature um, that had been coming out from uh, the UCLA, uh, our collaborators from UCLA, as well as the University of Louisville. So I was aware of this type of intervention and what was available to the individuals with spinal cord injuries and what their outcomes were, which were really promising. But I think this paper and and our, our results really kind of are a home run compared to where it started. And so, you know, we knew there was a possibility, but what was the level of ability and what was the level of recovery was really beyond my belief at that point. So it's really amazing to see the progress that we've made to this point. Anything to add, Dr. Zell? I guess I would like to just add that, I mean, I think it's exciting that, that we at Mayo get to have a team that, that is able to replicate this work and push it forward. And, and now we're really excited because we have this great team together and the possibilities are sort of endless now for what for what we can do next. So, so what role does, does therapy play and rehabilitation play in this whole process? And how important is it? We know about the implant. We know about the stimulation. Um, but didn't this patient also have a significant amount of therapy before the implant was ever inserted? Yeah. So So part of the trial was for the first five to six months, we did physical therapy alone and just worked on the type of activities that were task-specific to standing and stepping and balance training, which is what we continued with after the surgery. But we really wanted to do the physical therapy intensively just to find out what kind of recovery is possible with just the therapy alone. Um, this individual that um, we published in the in the paper had very little physical therapy after his injury um, three years prior, other than the traditional conventional compensatory strategies. Um, so it wasn't to the level of what we introduced in the rehab um, program with this trial. So he did five to six months of intense therapy with you know maybe minor improvements in terms of his endurance and his conditioning, but no recovery below his level of injury. Well, so how do you, what sort of physical therapy do you do on someone whose legs are paralyzed? So our goal was to regain volitional activation and, and movement. Which means? Um, to be able to intently move their legs or activate their muscles. Okay. So you were trying to get him to be able to move something that wouldn't move. Correct. And, but you can Correct. do that? And we were, we were using strategies that we use with other individuals with neurologic conditions um, to try to engage the, the neuromuscular 
um, activity of the legs and the trunk by loading them and by going through the repetition of the flexion extension moments of the legs. So it's a standard of care that we typically follow for people who have some motor and sensory activation, but it's not the standard of care for people who have a complete paralysis injury such as these individuals. So you were trying to strengthen the muscles that you knew the patient would need to walk? Partially, yes. I remind you that when there's a spinal cord injury, there is no damage to the muscles. The damage is in the spinal cord. But so they the shrink. Nerves. They atrophy. They atrophy, time. definitely. Sure. So our, our purpose was to try to send sensory information up through the nervous system by loading the legs and providing tactile cues and movements of the legs that can be sent up through the, to the central nervous system to then try to make the connection in the nerves to then send a motor output to the muscles. So does this type of therapy continue indefinitely? For the patient? So we quickly realized that, you know, you can't have epidural electrical stimulation without physical therapy, we feel. They're both integral into this, this type of recovery. So we know it's really important. So you, you can put the implant in, but that it won't do any good if you don't have the therapy. We, that's our theory. Uh, that mm-hmm. has yet to be proven as well. But um, we know physical therapy itself wasn't the answer. So we had the implant and we added the therapy and the stimulation together, and we got these miraculous results. Um, what goes on from here is a little tricky because, number one, like I said, this is not the standard of care for someone who has a completely um, uh, severe spinal cord injury. So to be able to send this individual out to the clinic now without this standard of care would be tricky because our clinicians don't know how to manage the sure. stimulator in, in conjunction with the therapy, which we feel is really, really valuable. So we're at the point with this trial where we're really trying to integrate the home exercise program by identifying the activities that have been really proven safe and possible for the individuals to do on their own at home with some minimal assistive devices and then let them do that stuff at home on their own. Um, and then and then we, it's our job to figure out, you know, who is this appropriate, when is it appropriate, if it is appropriate, and how do we implement it into a standard of care? So how many patients have had the stimulator now and are, are presently going through the therapy? And w- what are the things that they're actually able to do that they couldn't do before? So we're on our second subject right now, our patients. So we've enrolled two. Um, we have some research funding to hopefully continue into a new protocol that will be very similar but will allow us to enroll additional subjects. Um, Right now, the subject, um, the first subject is able to, um, you know, stand alone for a long period of time. He's able to... um, In wheelchair bound before. Yes. Um, He's able to walk um, or independently step on a treadmill and also over ground with a walker. So he has some assistance, obviously, to help him, you know, bear weight on his legs, but he's able to... um, as Megan described, volitionally move his legs when he wants, so on command. So that's really the exciting part is, is where where we can go from here now. Does it improve bladder and bowel function for him? We've had some anecdotal improvements, although um, we didn't measure those things directly. So um, at this point, um, our next studies, we're going to do more um, data collections, which we hope will help inform whether there's actual return of, of bowel and bladder. Um, but they do report um, kind of a shorter bowel um, time, so that's a good thing. Um, we just so don't have evidence yet. So. You're working with a second patient. Mm-hmm. Is it very similar to what the first patient was, or are no two patients the same? <laughs> no two patients up. are the same. Yeah. Sure. 
So how do we go from one or two individuals to millions? Because we know there are somewhere between five and six million people out there who have spinal cord injuries, maybe not complete, but partial. Mm-hmm. How do we, where do we go from here? How can we get this technology for, to more Three, people? four, five million. <laughs> yes. So I think Megan alluded to this earlier, and we've probably both alluded to, you know, one thing we need is obviously to gain additional research support, money to do this work and to keep this team moving forward. But I think one of the other critical questions is, you know, which patients um, will respond to this therapy and which ones will not. So can we come up with a way of saying, you know, out of the millions of patients, you know, the, these people will respond and these won't so that we don't try to, you know, deliver a therapy that's not going to be uh, successful. Finally, do you believe that someday paralysis won't be permanent for all patients? Well, we're definitely making a turn because we used to just talk about how do we compensate for the deficits that are existing for this population. And now Mm -hmm. we're talking about how do we recover and how do we make neuroplasticity occur in the central nervous system. So we're definitely making the change and the progress of how we're managing and dealing with spinal cord injuries. But there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, you've made so much progress so so far, and it's an exciting technology, and you've both done such great work, and we wish you the very best of luck. Thank you. We've been talking about spinal cord stimulation and the role of rehabilitation with Dr. Christian Zhao from Mayo Clinic's Assistive and Restorative Technology Laboratory. That's an impressive name. <laughs> and Mayo Clinic Physical Therapist, Megan Gill. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. At the Mayo Clinic, the primary guiding principle or value for all of us is the needs of the patient come first. Now, one group who helps carry out that mission is the Mayo Clinic volunteers. Mayo volunteers provide patients and visitors with hospitality, services, and amenities that help make a visit to the Mayo Clinic a little more pleasant, a little more enjoyable, even if you're ill. Volunteers are very important all across the world. Well, volunteers at Mayo Clinic give tours and information. They work in libraries, stores, and patient treatment areas, and they even offer some very popular services like caring canines and hand massages. Here to discuss is the Director of Volunteer Services at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Kimberly Van Roy. Welcome to the program, Kimberly. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and share a little more about what we do. Kim, it's good to have you. This must be sort of a fun job. It's absolutely a fun job, a feel-good job. So I feel honored to be representing our volunteers. Uh, I would imagine, I mean, this program is heard across the country. I would imagine that any hospital relies on its volunteers and probably would like to give them a congratulations every once in a while. So I'm glad that you can do it for everyone. Thank you. So what is it, how is it different to be a volunteer at Mayo Clinic? I think one of the things that I hear from our volunteers, and interestingly enough, we really don't have to recruit volunteers. We have a really full pipeline. You have a waiting list? For our young volunteer program, we do have a wait list, yes. But when I talk to other areas in Rochester, they say, how do you get people? How do you get people? And they ask me what my recruitment strategy is, and I say, well, we don't, I mean, knock on wood, we don't have a strong recruitment strategy because we just have so many people that want to be part of this culture. And many of our volunteers have a family member that were treated here, or they were an employee and wanted to give back. I even have had folks relocate, true story, so that they can come back now in retirement and volunteer at Mayo Clinic. Wow. How many uh, are there? How many volunteers? I, and you have them all over the campus, I guess. Right. Um, last year, we had close to 1,600 total in Rochester. What kind of training does it take to be a volunteer? 
it's it varies based on what service area you're going to be in. So if you're going to do brochure de- deliveries, it might be a little bit different training than if you're doing caring hands where we have a robust um, process, checklist. We send you home to do a little practice and then come back. So it does vary by each service area, but we do have standards and requirements and checklists for every service area, and we definitely make sure you're trained before we turn you loose. You mentioned carrying uh, the hand massages. Uh, yes. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Is that becoming a popular one for people to volunteer for? Well, the people that do it say they get so much more out of it than what they give. And it's not just the massage. It's also really listening and sometimes just being with that patient. Um, it's really neat to be able to go in and be part of the, we say, healthcare team without having to give them medication or prob or poke them. Um, and we actually published a research study with the help of integrative medicine to show that our patients on Gonda 10 that received caring hands massage prior to their treatment, they did better. They were less stressed. They had less anxiety. So we know that this works. We have uh, published research now to back that up. And our massage, um, our Caring Hands Massage volunteers, they absolutely love what they do. And we provided over 8,000 of them last year. You know, the next time you come, you should bring one of those uh, hand massages. <laughs> right, I should have brought one you. today, yeah. right? Exactly. Are there any age restrictions with regard to being a volunteer at Mayo? Can you be too young or too old? So you have to be at least 14, but we do not have a cap on how old. So right now our oldest volunteer is 100. What about uh, one of your other popular programs, the, care, the Caring Canines in dog years? How many? Uh, vo- how old are some of those volunteers? <laughs> okay, I won't make you figure that out. But tell us about Caring Canines. Sure. That is a partnership that we have with Integrative Medicine as well. And um, Jessica Smith, who is our partner in Integrative Medicine, she kind of handles the requirements for the dogs because that's a little out of our wheelhouse. But we recruit the volunteers. She takes care of the dog piece of it or the canine piece of it. Again, there are certain requirements. The dogs have to have certain certifications because whenever you're bringing an animal into a hospital, you have to make sure they're vetted appropriately, no pun intended. (laughs) And um, there are about 30 teams of volunteers. Patients uh, love the service. It's actually something that can be ordered through Epic. So care providers will order the service and we get obviously great feedback on that service as well. All right. Other services you provide? Yeah, you may have seen some of our volunteers at the welcome desk or providing wayfinding. Um, so we try to take it one step further and walk the halls. You'll see that deer in the headlights look where people just obviously are not sure where they're going. So we wanted to provide volunteers to actually just walk the halls and say, can I help you find where you're going? Mm-hmm. And they will take them directly to the area they need to go. So that's kind of a unique one. And we promote that is if you want to get steps in, we're a big <laughs> campus. If you want to get fit and help patients, this is the service for you. Um, you could do unofficial wayfinding. Y- because oh. I've done that lots of times. Absolutely. When someone has that look on their face. Right. <laughs> One of the other things that's kind of a, a seek, best kept secret is our handicraft volunteers. We have, um, we, we made almost 20,000 handmade items last year. And that's everything from pediatric surgical caps to toe cozies. So if you break your foot in the winter, a little knitted um, toe cozy to go over the cast. 
Um, stuffed animals, you might see kids walking around with little stuffed animals that our volunteers have made. And I always say when I retire, I want to come back and have a backpack full of those and just hand them out to kids all over the campus. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be my volunteer role when I retire. Fabulous. And the gift shops. Absolutely. Yeah, two of them. We have Sisters Crossing and then the Methodist Campus gift shop. So, um, And a lot of people don't know that our proceeds go back to the practice. So the Pavarillo Fund, the Good Samaritan Fund, and then we also fund a lot of institutional requests. Um, for example, an area needed iPads to better communicate with tracheostomy patients, and we funded that uh, initiative. So we try to give back to the organization any of the profits we make. So if you shop there, you're really helping our patients. As I mentioned, uh, this program is heard on over 200 stations around the country. So let's say that someone is far away from Rochester, Minnesota right now, but likes to help out, likes to volunteer in their community, and is maybe getting an idea of some way they could help out at their local clinic or community Well, if they want to reach out to me, I'm more than happy to share what our model looks like. I would suggest reaching out to hospital patient experience as a first step of getting into the door. And that's Van Roy with two O's. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Kimberly Van Roy, Director of Volunteer Services at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. You do so much good for so many. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here today. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.